My name is Sean Jordan. Welcome to the Adaptive Outdoorsman Podcast. Here we'll be discussing the history and legacy behind disabled hunters, trappers, anglers, and how they adapt and persevere in the woods, on the line, and on the water. Welcome, everyone, to the podcast. I'd like to introduce our guest today, author and Boone biographer Robert Morgan of Cornell University, former Cornell University professor. Welcome to the show. Good to be here. Well, thank you for coming on. So I wanted to, I know we've been wanting to get on to the podcast and we've had some issues in the past, technical issues, but we got to be here now. We made it. And I, yeah, right. We made it. We actually finally did it. And I wanted to jump right in and obviously you're talking, we're talking Boone first and foremost. So what gave you the idea of writing a book about Boone? Well, I grew up uh, on a farm in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and uh, my dad was a hunter, an avid hunter and trapper, and uh, Boone was one of his heroes. So I grew up hearing about Daniel Boone. Daniel Boone's Mm -hmm. mother was a Morgan, and my dad thought we were related. Uh, It turned out Mm -hmm. we are, actually. We uh, descended from the same uh, family in Bala in uh, North Wales. I did some research on Daniel Boone years ago for a long poem about him. Mm-hmm. I never wrote the poem, but I used the research later. Uh, way back about uh, 2003, my publisher, Algonquin Books, got interested in doing nonfiction books. My mm-hmm. editor said, uh, would you like to write something in nonfiction? Uh and I said, uh, maybe. Uh, she said, uh, what would you like to do? Well, I said, biography. I love to read biographies. Uh, she said, well, who would you like to write about? And I said, Edgar Allan Poe and uh, Daniel Boone. Uh, she asked the marketing <laughs> uh, department uh, which they would prefer, which would sell better. And they said, Daniel Boone. So I had an excuse to spend uh, about three to four years uh, researching Daniel Boone and going to all the places he had uh, lived and hunted. I really nice. enjoyed research, I discovered. Uh, I'd been a, a fiction writer and a poet up to that point, but uh, I loved mm-hmm. going to Kentucky and Missouri and Pennsylvania, Virginia and North Carolina, all the places uh, he had lived and hunted. Yeah. Uh, it was a very good uh, Project. I think the timing was right. Uh, suddenly, there was a lot of interest in the frontier and in early American history. Uh, so I really enjoyed that uh, and uh, really studying the colonial period. Uh, Freemasonry. Daniel Boone was a Freemason, and uh, nice. learning something about uh, his life, his health, his his techniques for for hunting and trapping. Uh, so uh, I got to spend, I guess, almost four years researching that and, and writing it. And the book nice. uh, took off. It was the only book I've ever published that sold out before publication date. They, they had to, <laughs> I, went on book, wow. I went on a book tour and there were no books to sell. They'd, they'd all sold out. Uh, it's pretty much, oh, uh-huh. hey, do you want to, oh, I, okay, I'll sign the book you already bought. <laughs> That was pretty much it on that, huh? Right. Uh, well, I could talk a long time about Daniel Boone, but uh, what's your next question? 
Well, uh, I was wanting to know for Boone, what was your best place that you wanted, you liked visiting that he's been in? Like, well, there were several. I guess the last place I visited was uh, up in Missouri. His last mm -hmm. uh, home was in uh, Missouri, St. Charles area, and there was this beautiful rock house built by him and his son, uh, Nathan, right toward the end of his life. And uh, mm -hmm. I found it uh, just to look at it, to see the work they had done, and also to see how it resembled the house in Pennsylvania where he was born. So all mm. those years later, he had remembered those big rock houses in Missouri, and uh, he and his son, uh, with some help, uh, built one probably more beautiful, even bigger than the one he had been born in. And Holy I love the Missouri countryside. Which, it was a, a wilderness when he uh, moved there. There were still Indians, and that meant a lot to him, because you don't have a wilderness without Indians. It's a contradiction yeah. in terms. I mean, once the Indians are gone, the game will be gone, and, and civilization will move in. Uh, so certainly, Missouri mm. was one of my favorite places. Nice. Yeah, I, uh, when I learned about Daniel Boone, you know, from the old school Disney shows and all that, and then listening and hearing about how you were talking on another podcast about uh, Daniel Boone and his upbringing and how he acquired certain ailments throughout his life, it got me thinking about what I've been doing in the podcasting and I wanted to always talk about, you know, the mountain men and historical figures and, and what they had to face and what they had to deal with. And so that's why I obviously contacted you. And so I wanted to get into that. What ailments over the course of his lifetime did he acquire? Well, several. He was exposed to weather, to cold, to rain, uh, for a long time when he was young and he got terrible arthritis. It really, mm -hmm. in middle age, it, it began to attack him and at times he was, he was almost unable to walk. So people would have to help him and uh, carry his uh, rifle for him. His wife would sometimes go with him, carry his rifle. Uh, so fairly early on, he, he really was uh, impaired somewhat, but he was such yeah. a skilled hunter that he knew where to go to uh, to get the deer, where to wait for them, that sort of thing. And uh, in mm -hmm. bear hunting, his favorite hunting, I think, was bear. At one point, he uh, he hunted uh, in the Big Sandy River, headwaters of the Big Sandy mm -hmm. River, and uh, killed over 100 bears in one one season. Uh, they were, uh, wow. he was with family there, his, his daughters and uh, some of his sons-in-law and sons, and they would camp out near the headwaters of Big Sandy, near Pikeville, Kentucky, and uh, and boil the bear meat for the oil, render it down. Mm -hmm. That was the thing that sold best. They also uh, made bear bacon. They would uh, dry that. I haven't had either. And uh, also the hides. They could sell the hides. So they would go in the wintertime. Mm -hmm. It was his only way to make a living in those days. He had lost everything. Yeah. All of his land, he'd lost that, his stores, his, uh, his surveying business was, uh, was pretty much over. He was broke, and he had arthritis. So uh, they would go up there in the wintertime, spend the wintertime uh, 
hunting bears and rendering the oil down and come down, I guess, uh, with pack horses and bring it down to uh, sell mm-hmm. in various places. But he, he, the way he hunted bears probably was mostly with dogs. He, he had dogs and uh, they would uh, obviously find a trail and, and follow the bear and tree it. And uh, they had horses to carry bear out. You know, if you're hunting bear, one of the big problems, if you kill one, is how are you going to get it out? Uh, you have to yep. have a horse or some kind of uh, motor vehicle now to uh, get it out of the woods. Yeah. And uh, they would bring it back to the camp. Now, when I published Boone, a biography, I began it in Pikeville, Kentucky, close to the gap where he first entered Kentucky, way back mm. in about 1767, I believe. It seemed like the place to launch the book. And there were local historians right. there, very interested in Boone and in my book. So before yep. my appearance, they said, we'll take you to the place where the camp was, where the, where they uh, camped out every year and, and uh, dressed the bear meat and, and uh, rendered the, the oil. But they said, we've never seen a bear there. Ever, all the years we visited, we've never seen a bear. So uh, they uh, took me in a jeep way up in the mountains on this road, winding round and round. And as we approached the site, a black bear jumped out in the road (laughs) in front of us and uh, went all the way to the campsite (laughs) before it disappeared in the woods. Well, I told this story to a friend who's who's Indian out in Montana. And uh, he said, the bear wanted you to know it was okay. <laughs> I've always, I've always awesome. loved that uh, memory. There was a black bear there when I visited the camp. Uh, like it was Daniel Boone saying, hey, tell my story. Now, Boone had one other uh, impairment. Mm-hmm. Beginning in, uh, in late middle age, he developed cataracts. And he could not see as well. He'd been such a crack marksman. Uh, Mm -hmm. But uh, he simply was not the marksman he had been because his eyesight was not that good as he got into old age, late middle age and old age. And you can imagine this would change his hunting habits so much. Now, they shot deer and, and other animals around salt licks. So he would hide near a salt lick, probably mm-hmm. with a friend, and wait for the game to show up. Elk, deer, bear, yeah. and others. And uh, since he would be close by, he didn't need to have such great eyesight. He also he could just see the was shapes. hunting with people who had better eyesight. Uh, yeah. But late in life, Boone went into the woods uh, Arthritis, bad eyesight, partly just to be out there in the wilderness. He had Indian mm-hmm. friends, Indian relatives, Shawnee relatives who had gone to Missouri. And uh, they would paddle up uh, the river. They would explore new parts of that wilderness. It was pretty wild. Once he went up the river as far as Yellowstone with a group of trappers and hunters. And he probably was... So old, he didn't do a lot of the shooting and even a lot of the trapping, but he was with them. He wanted to see the West. He wanted to go to the Pacific. Uh, when Lewis and Clark expedition stopped in Missouri in, uh, in what is it, 1804, 
four, I guess. Uh, I want to say. They wanted to see Boone, but he was out hunting. He didn't see them. <laughs> but when another nice. party, the Astor Party, went up the river, he did see them. And they said he stood on the shore looking until they disappeared. He longed to go across the Rocky Mountains to the Pacific. He had heard about the Pacific. But Now, how old was Boone when uh, they came through there? He was born in 1734. So he would have been so. 66 at the turn of the century and add four to that. So he'd been 70 years old. Uh, oh, so yeah, he probably wouldn't have been much help getting them to and fro. No, but they would have loved to have him because he was such a great scout. He knew so much about uh, the wilderness. And, of course, he was a great storyteller. <laughs> he was always fun. I mean, the beginning yep. of the Boone legend is with Boone himself. He was such a great storyteller. People knew about him. He was famous even before Filson published the biography. And uh, He just wanted to tell people his story. And they loved it. That's why he brought people uh, to the West. Uh, wherever he went, people wanted to go. The Spanish nice. authorities out in Missouri gave him a big tract of land to go there because they knew wherever he went, thousands of people would follow, and they wanted a buffer against the British up in Canada. Uh, of course, they didn't realize yeah. that once so many English-speaking people got there, it was become, become a part of the United States, almost certainly. But uh, no, yeah. he was famous uh, even when he was in uh, young, uh, early middle age because of his storytelling and because of the great yeah. tales of his prowess as a hunter and trapper and explorer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what age would you say that he suffered from arthritis in his feet real bad? Because I remember hearing stories about how he did basically a marathon a day or so to get from Fort Detroit down to Boonesboro. Now he fled from his Shawnee relatives uh, near some salt licks in Ohio, mm -hmm. and uh, it took him four days to get to Boonesboro. He had a okay, horse. So they were about the ahead. horse died. He, he rode it so far, and uh, he had to make his way uh, all the way. He floated across the Ohio on a raft he made for, from some dead wood, and he had nothing to eat until he shot a buffalo at the Blue Licks near the Blue Licks. He had a piece of a rifle for which he made a stock and, uh, and killed that buffalo, uh, broiled the hump. The favorite part of a buffalo mm -hmm. was the hump, the sweetest meat, mm -hmm. and then made his way all the way to Boonesboro. Now his father, his Shawnee father, Blackfish, sure, was sure he would die because how could he possibly make his way? The Indians thought that white men couldn't possibly make their way through the wilderness, but they discovered <laughs> to, to their sadness that the Boone and some of these scouts could always find their way uh, through the woods. They taught them well. Uh, so uh, he did make it back to Boonesboro and, uh, and in fact, uh, finished the fort before the Blackfish and the Shawnee attacked. Wow. Uh, he could, yeah, that, he was probably... What was he, uh, probably 20-somes when he ran, uh, when he did that, or a little older? No, that would have been in, uh, gosh, 1778, and uh, he would have been 44, wouldn't he? He was born in 34, 
Mm-hmm. 78. He's 30. Mm-hmm. Well, He's been 44. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But he was already beginning to feel arthritis, even by then. Mm-hmm. It didn't become serious until a little bit later. By the time he left, yeah. uh, he left Limestone up on the Ohio and moved back to uh, Virginia, what we now call West Virginia. He was already suffering severely from arthritis mm-hmm. and uh, depended on his store and trading in furs and ginseng, things like that, uh, mm-hmm. and not so much on his hunting uh, at that time. Yeah. And later, of course, when he yeah. was hunting bear, he had his, his sons and grandsons and his wife. She was a terrific marksman, by the way. Rebecca Boone was a very good shot. And some of those bears almost certainly were killed by Rebecca. No, oh, I guarantee not you. Not by him. Yeah. I know a thing or two about arthritis in the feet since I got, I was born with bilateral club feet. So I know a thing or two about pain when walking. So that kind of made me think about that in a way that even back then you're going to have ailments in your feet and, Oh, I think Boone had a lot of pain, but it didn't stop him. He kept, oh. he kept going, and uh, occasionally he had to be carried, especially across streams. He had the people with him who would carry him. Uh, oh. That suggests yeah. that at times he really had severe arthritic pain. Not always. It would come and yeah. go. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I know that. I was just feeling some pain today that made me start limping at work. So, <laughs> But... For me, it's the thing I want to do, which is my dream hunt, which is to hunt a mountain goat or a sheep. And that's going to hurt. Got to walk a long way. <laughs> Climb those mm-hmm. mountains. Up a steep hill with bad feet. That's a fun one. I'll still do it, though. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, all right. So, I know Boone lasted till he was 88. 86 when he died. 86. Yeah, I remember hearing about how he, a historian or a painter, it was a painter, I believe, visited his house. And I remember hearing about the... Yeah, Chester Harding. Yeah, Chester Harding. Came from uh, Massachusetts. And painted the... What was he? He painted him when he was... Like when he was younger, or he painted the painting when he was... Like he was older. Now, he was older. He may have uh, mm-hmm. have touched it up to make him look a little bit younger, because he would have been. Mm-hmm. This would have been when he was about eighty. Uh, yeah, it, it, made him look like he was sixty. But I think it was Harding, Chester Harding, who asked if he had been lost, ever been lost, and uh, and Boone said, uh, <laughs> "I have been." What do you say? I have been uh, uh, bewildered some, <laughs> but I've never lost. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, have I been here before? Nope. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I think the thing that made my day about Boone was him making, what was it, three coffins? Uh, yes, he uh, he was, uh, Nathan, his son Nathan assumed that he had died in the woods. His companion came back and said he had died. So Nathan had a had a pine coffin made. And went to get him, went to get the body, and then Boone had recovered. <laughs> so brought him back home, and uh, he said, that coffin is just it's just not classy enough. I don't want to be buried, and something like that. 
So he gave it to a relative and uh, had one, a very fine one made uh, of either cherry wood or uh, what was the other? Uh, uh, I thought it was oak. Or, was it oak? Was or it maple? Uh, but that was, wasn't good enough. So he had yet another one made and he would take naps yeah, that- in it to... Uh, to amuse the children or to scare them <laughs> as he was uh, as he was sick and dying he would he would uh, touch it he would uh, touch it to make sure it was the quality that he he desired and uh, was it cherry and maple it, uh, one or the other but he he kept it yeah. beside him there to uh, and i th- i think it showed his uh, his easiness, his confidence, his lack of fear, uh, mm-hmm. and his death was an absolute classic one. They talked about beautiful deaths in the 19th mm-hmm. century, and it was the perfect one. He knew it was coming. He had uh, one of his favorite dishes, I guess. His favorite daughter-in-law sang hymns for him, sang songs for him. Uh, he said to mm-hmm. them, don't worry, I've had a long life. I, I, uh, I feel good. I'm at peace. Uh, mm-hmm. I try to never do any harm, but to live uh, in, in peace with everybody. And he died yeah. with uh, Nathan holding one hand and uh, Jemima holding the other, his favorite, favorite daughter. And it was just peaceful. Everybody was sad, but it was at the same time. And I remember hearing about this, I think it was from you, back then, they celebrated in such a way that they were actually happy and joyous uh, during his passing. Right, they believed he had been a good man, and uh, he was a believer. Mm. He, he, was, uh, he, he believed in a general way in Christianity and in the Indian beliefs that he had, mm. he had acquired. He had been very close to Indians and learned a lot from them. And he... He had sort of uh, combined Christianity with the, the Great Spirit uh, mm. in both, both worlds. Yeah. Well, he lived a great life. It was a hard life, and he had to deal with physical ailments, but he adapted, and he definitely persevered. I in think the he had uh, at least one regret, mm. and he believed that his leadership and his fame had brought so many people into the wilderness, he had destroyed, helped destroy the Indians' hunting ground. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, so his, his memories were somewhat divided in that way. He, he knew he had, uh, yeah. he had been friends with lots of people. He had enjoyed the wilderness. He had been friends with the Indians. But he wasn't sure about what he had done some damage also by bringing so many mm-hmm. settlers surveying land for for people uh, just uh, Kentucky had gone from a great wilderness a paradise on earth when they got there buffalo elk yeah. savannas great streams by the 1790s it was heavily settled the deer were gone mm-hmm. the buffalo were gone the elk were gone and uh, there were cities and lawyers like Henry Clay had taken all of his land. Not oh, just his wow. land, Simon Kenton, the other great frontiersman, lost all of his land in lawsuits and later moved to Ohio. 
So they didn't yeah. need Daniel Boone. Uh, you know, once <laughs> civilization moved in, they had schools and yeah. churches and people were studying Latin and were very greedy. It wasn't the kind of place. Boone was a hunter. He believed in sharing everything he had. The frontiersmen yeah. shared. They killed a deer and brought it back and, and, and uh, gave pieces to everybody. Like the yeah. Indians did. I mean, they, they would share what they had. It's become a very yeah. grabby, a very, very stingy place. And that's why he wanted to move to Missouri, where there were still Indians and still wilderness. Well, well, that's good that he was able to do that. And he was able to go on several adventures before he, uh, his eventual passing, which, again, that was still cool with the coffin story. <laughs> Yeah, he actually went up to Missouri as far as the Yellowstone, apparently. <laughs> uh, yeah. Came hey. back with a treasure, a treasure of furs and hides. <laughs> He's like, hey, I just came back. They gave it to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I know we want to talk about Boone, and I wanted to get touch on a few other mountain men that uh, you have uh, knowledge on and just get their idea of how they had to endure and what they've done as well. And uh, I wanted to start with Kit Carson. Now, what did Kit have to endure that eventually led to him having issues? Kit Carson, in my opinion, is the greatest scout of them all. He mm -hmm. was related to Daniel Boone by marriage. And the Carson family followed the Boone family from North Carolina to Kentucky, to Missouri. Uh, yeah. There was a close, they never met. Uh, Carson was born in uh, 1809, I believe, while, uh, while Boone was still alive and, and was in Missouri, actually. Yeah. But uh, Carson uh, was not a big man. He, he was a small, he had a small physique. Uh, he never learned to read and write, but he had a photographic mind he remembered everything he ever saw. He knew at least a dozen Indian languages. He knew Canadian French, and he knew Mexican Spanish. Uh, he was such a outdoorsman that early on he got heart trouble. He had angina, and this gave him great pains, and it's a very painful uh, thing. But he, it's not surprising he spent so much time uh, hunting in all kinds of conditions. He once took Fremont's party over the Sierra Nevada Pass mm -hmm. in January when the snow was, you know, like 12, 14, 15 feet deep. He actually yes. got them through. <laughs> he was such a great guide that uh, the people he was guiding always made it. Uh, Broken Hand Fitzgerald and and uh, the scout named Smith took uh, Fremont across a pass and they almost died. Later, Carson wasn't on that. Uh, Carson yeah. knew how to uh, in the desert find roots with water, and uh, if all else failed, he bled the mule and drank the blood. Uh, he did that more than yeah, once I, in the Great Basin. I, uh, yeah, I remember he did that i was a i think it was a history channel biopic on the frontiersman and they said when he had to go back to i think it was tell for reinforcements or to tell that 
they had won or something, he basically had to go through the desert to skip months of travel, pretty much. He made fantastic voyages all of his life. He, uh, after California, was taken uh, by uh, Kearney and, and Fremont. He was asked to uh, deliver the news to Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And uh, he got to, uh, uh, gosh, somewhere in, uh, I guess, New Mexico. And mm-hmm. uh, I guess he... he uh, he had to go all the way. Uh, he was with, he met Carney there and was forced to go back to meet him and was at, therefore mm-hmm. was at the Battle of San Pasqual, uh, Mule Hill, where the Americans were yeah. always wiped out. And he had to crawl through the three levels of, uh, of uh, patrol by the Mexicans on his belly <laughs> without shoes. <laughs> And walk all the way to uh, San Diego to ask for help. Ooh. The Mexicans Ow. knew he was there, and they counted, shouted the woman, uh, the warning, "Watch out for El Lupo, <laughs> the wolf." That's what they call uh, Carson. Uh, wow! But he uh, did get to Washington. He was so famous that uh, he carried a lot of influence with Congress. Uh, the thing he did that he regretted most was he was made an officer during the Civil War out in Taos, his home in Taos, and he was ordered to round up the Navajo and bring them to a reservation. Nobody, the Mexicans, the Spanish, the Americans, had ever been able to defeat the Navajo. Carson spoke Navajo. He knew the Navajo. He was friends with the Navajo. But when they ordered him to do it, he was in the Union Army. It was the Civil War. And he believed mm-hmm. he had to follow orders. So he took his army, his, uh, it was his company, into the desert to Kenyon Deshaies. Uh, he was so mm-hmm. superstitious of the medicine of the Navajos that he wouldn't go into the canyon. He sent his men in. And they burned mm-hmm. the fields. They chopped down the orchards, they burned the silos, they burned the villages, and returned to Taos. Winter came on, and the Navajos, starving in the desert, had to come in and turn themselves in. Wow. They moved them on the long march, the bad march, to to, uh, Mm Bosque Redondo on the Pecos River. Many died on that trip. This is a land they didn't know anything about. Carson yeah. went to Washington and lobbied to get them returned to Canyon to say. And it worked. Hmm. But he nice. was he was not proud of that. But he No. Somebody in the East was watching. Uh, Sherman, <laughs> William T. Cupsey Sherman. Mm. Oh wow. And the wisdom was that's how you do it. <laughs> you destroy the food. Destroy the villages. Yeah. So we know the result Don't of that was the march to the sea through Georgia. Uh, but uh, Carson. So he learned. You were ahead. Oh. So he learned. Well, Sherman learned that uh, scorched earth policy from Crit Carson himself. Carson knew how to do everything he was assigned. 
an amazingly wow. resourceful person. But he did some things he wasn't proud of, and that's one of them. Uh, mm-hmm. They knew that if anybody could subdue uh, the Navajos, it would be him. And I'll tell you, yeah. to this day, the Navajos have not forgotten this. Uh, nor should they. The, yeah, no. Now, do they, were they thankful for him bringing them back, or were they just still angry that, that he kicked them off and did what he had to do? That I can't answer. I know that to this day, they don't have good memories of Kit Carson. Uh, yeah. Well, I can't imagine why. Carson uh, you worked as a courier for the post service. Mm-hmm. And he was beginning to get angina. Mm-hmm. And when he did all these things, he, he was quite sick at times. Uh, but he kept going. He uh, was very weak. Uh when he died, he was, I believe, a brigadier general at a fort uh, north of uh, Taos. Uh, he wow. had served as an Indian agent, and he was a very good one, by the way, uh, particularly mm-hmm. to, the, to the Utes, the Paiutes. Uh, he could speak their languages. He understood them. And when he was very rough, he was abiding by Indian uh, ethics. They knew mm-hmm. if they did something bad, I mean, you know, they would pursue somebody and uh, kill them, and that's what he did. Uh, this does yeah. not enhance his reputation <laughs> in the current no. uh, time that he lived by Indian uh, ethics and, and culture. Yeah, he, he fought now, an Indian for his uh, his wife. His first <laughs> wife was uh, singing grass. She was a mm. a, 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 a rickera. I believe. Mm. I didn't even know that that was an Indian tribe. The Rickeras, uh, yeah, from up in uh, up in, uh, in the, the Dakota area, ah. Nebraska. Yeah, I know the big named ones, but I don't know the lesser named tribes. I know that for a fact. I know, like I said, my uh, grandmother. She always talked about. Sh- uh, the Cree and the Shawnee and other play. Uh, dear good Lord, what's the one in Kentucky? Shawnees, uh, Shawnee. and uh, there are many people who claim Kentucky, but when Boone first went there, the Shawnees were claiming part of it, the Cherokees claimed part of it. That's but the, that's the one, but the, the people who really controlled it most at that time were the Iroquois, it was their buffalo hunting ground. And if anybody mm. tried to establish a, a village there, they would burn it. Uh, the Shawnees uh, established villages and they got burned out. Uh, the Iroquois, oh. uh, after the great fur wars of the 18th century, controlled parts of mm. Kentucky for a long time. They were a huge, oh. huge nation and they had the, the manpower and, and the will to... Uh, Use it as their reserve, their buffalo hunting reserve. Well, got to keep the buffalo in numbers in order to eat for wintertime. So, that works. But they had the deer and the now, bear in the east, but the, the buffalo I, country was in the west. Yeah. Chicago Way was a Shawnee. Uh, oh. Her, her, yeah, her I, native tribe was the Shawnees. I know that uh, she met up with the Shawnees from her brother, I believe. Right. Yeah. In, what was it? 
<sighs> Utah or not Utah? No, it, it, it would have been in uh, probably in uh, in Montana. Yeah. North Dakota. They went up the Missouri River and uh, encountered her. The Shawnee, the Shawnee traveled a great distance from that area, from Kentucky all the way up there. Oh, they were not in Kentucky. You think of, of, uh, oh. of the Shawnees, not the Shawnee. Oh, Shawnee. Shoshone, okay, Shoshones yeah. uh, lived uh, west of the mountains, but they had to cross the mountains to buffalo hunt. Uh, and that's how she mm. got uh, captured. They were, they were across the mountains hunting for buffalo. Ah. The Shawnees had lived yeah. all kinds of places. They'd lived in North Carolina at one time, some of them in Pennsylvania. They'd been split up. And uh, at Boone's time, they were primarily living in Ohio. Chillicothe was the, was one of the big towns. That's where Boone was captured or went when he was captured and adopted by Blackfish. Chillicothe. What? What were, and I'm get, we'll get back to the mountain, but uh, topic of natives, what were the native tribes' reactions to people in their particular tribes born with disabilities or getting disabilities later on? I think they protected them. Uh, back to the, the ethics of the hunter, they would bring the game home and, and share it, particularly with the elderly people, and certainly mm -hmm. with uh, people who were who were uh, afflicted and couldn't hunt themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, the, this thing of uh, you know, the community, of sharing, was very important among the native tribes. I mean, that's something about that uh, everything mm -hmm. you know, was divided. The idea of individuals owning land was incomprehensible to Indians. The, the tribes would claim hunting territory, uh, but it was not an individual thing. It would be a tribal or a nation. A nation would have certain... Mm -hmm. And uh, it would be uh, not land, but the game on it. Uh, that is, it wasn't the soil that was owned or was claimed. It would have been the, mm -hmm. the fruits of it. Uh, what you could grow, yeah. what uh, what the game that you could kill, the maple syrup, <laughs> I suppose... They used maple syrup as their sweetening, uh, hmm. usually. By the way, Daniel Boone and his wife uh, made maple syrup every every spring. That was that was something they did <laughs> when the when the bear nice. hunting season was over. They'd go and, and tap the maple trees, uh, make that, and make some money and have some sweetener for the bear meat when you go and make bear bacon. Well, they would share it out with their family, certainly. Oh yeah. Um, Pure maple maple syrup is the best. I I can't go back to that uh, store bought um, uh, corn syrup yeah. stuff anymore. Cairo syrup. <laughs> oh good lord! I you seeing the viscosity of those? I'm like, no, 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 no. I want the good stuff. Give me the high quality. <laughs> Where I grew up, it was uh, sorghum molasses. Was the, the sweet thing. Uh, my grandpa was a sorghum. great. Uh, expert at making sorghum molasses. Sorghum is a kind mm. of cane. Mm. Blackstrap molasses uh, is made yeah. from sugar cane, but uh, sorghum is made from the sorghum. It's like, it's like corn or uh, it's kind of uh, stalk. Uh, corn. Never had sorghum molasses. It's mm. awfully good. Uh, 
Yeah. On hot biscuits. I imagine. Butter and hot biscuits. Oh. Oh, good. Now you're, now you're talking my language here. <laughs> so, I know with uh, the native tribes, Tecumseh, he ended up getting a limp from, I want to say, horse riding. I, I think know, he was thrown by a horse, yes. Here. Yeah, horse. Yeah, thrown by a horse. How did they view him after his injury? Well, he was so good a hunter that uh, he overcame it. That he, he mm-hmm. limped, but it uh, didn't make any difference. I mean, he was a superb hunter as well as a warrior. Uh, mm-hmm. But he was also probably the greatest orator in American history. When he spoke to yeah. people, he was, he was a preacher, essentially. He could mesmerize an audience uh, persuade just about anybody of what he wanted to persuade them of, which was join the Pan-Indian uh, uh, alliance to drive out the white mm-hmm. people, uh, to defeat the white people. But he yeah. was a terrific hunter, and if he couldn't walk as fast as other people to make a difference, he was a good rider. Uh, yeah, the horse makes up for the limp. Uh, but he was his, uh, his brother, the prophet, was disfigured and uh, I think blind in one eye uh, and not a good hunter as far as I know, but he was a spellbinder. He could convince people mm-hmm. he was a, he was a great medicine man and he had received, uh, you know, orders from the great spirit. Uh, they worked uh, in tandem, I think to some extent, but uh, mm-hmm. profit wasn't as reliable as uh, Tecumseh, he sometimes was a drunk and <laughs> was unpredictable. Yeah. Uh, Tecumseh, now, go ahead. Oh, uh, I was, I know from a map I saw a while back ago from the proposed Pan Indian Territory, it was Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and I think one other state, wasn't it? And they hoped going south into Alabama and uh, wow. Mississippi uh, to the Gulf. Mm. That, that was the dream. Oh, they wanted to. You have this. They wanted to cut them completely off. Well, in his sermons, he would say, "You know, drive the white people back in the Atlantic Ocean, where they came from, uh, and recover the continent uh, for the Indians, mm. for the native people." Uh, yeah, he he was down in uh, in Alabama preaching. Uh, to when uh, uh, one of the great uh, Muscogee leaders was in the audience, I think it was, uh, gosh, who was it? Red, Red Feather, Red, uh, and that leader challenged him. He said, "I don't think you, you know, have have the power. You don't have the medicine to do this." And Tecumseh yeah. was not used to people uh, saying that to Telling him. him no. He said, I, "When I stamp my foot, when I return." To Detroit, it will mm-hmm. shake your village down. And a little bit later, the great earthquake of 1811-1812 did shake their village down. Uh, <laughs> Got all of that new Mandarin fault. Yeah, I, I think it uh, it made uh, some believers. <laughs> oh, good lord! That That's earthquake was so powerful too. it made the uh, Mississippi River run backward for a little while. Now, that would be a sight to see, really. That would. Well, it raised the land in a place so high that the river flowed backward for a few hours, not, not for days. Uh, 
Yeah. People saw well, it. Just I seeing mean, like the Mississippi yeah. River just heaved up into a hill. Uh, <laughs> and went by by back of the same way it came and then it went came back away. Created real foot okay. lake. Uh, created the land of the shakes where where uh, where uh, uh, Crockett uh, had land and did his bear hunting. Yep. Now, did Crockett have any physical dis uh, any disabilities or any ailments towards the end of his life, or was he still pretty well in shape the entire time? I think he was uh, pretty well in shape. I mean, when he lost uh, his congressional seat and said, you know, uh, you all can go to hell and I will go to Texas, he essentially oh. partied all the way to Texas. I mean, he was so famous that uh, he had an entourage and they would go to this town and party and then to the next town. It took him uh, several months to get to the Alamo, uh, to get to Texas and... Uh, Mm -hmm. As far as pretty I know, he was, like, he was in pretty good shape. Uh, yeah. Now, I want to get to Thomas Brokenhand Fitzpatrick. What was his story? Uh, I know less about him than I know about the others. I know he, he had lost some fingers, and uh, that didn't mm -hmm. stop him in his scouting and exploring. Uh, he's yeah. considered after, after Carson. I think the best guide of the mountain man. He, he, uh, nice. he was with Fremont and he was with uh, Carson some of the time. Uh, but he also was leading that disastrous expedition for Fremont. He was with the people almost the Smith. died. They almost died. They just barely got yeah. out. Uh, but he was uh, he was uh, a close friend of uh, Carson and was at the great. Uh, Rendezvous. All the all the mountain men would bring their hides down to a rendezvous, usually up in Wyoming, I think, in a place in Wyoming. And mm -hmm. the Indians would gather to sell their furs, also, and bring their wives to to serve as prostitutes. Uh, not not something we talk mm. about a lot in, in history, but uh, it's a no. part of the Lewis and Clark expedition that uh, there would be. Uh, yeah. Indian prostitutes, as well as uh, Indians themselves, they would have games, challenges, rifle, rifle marksmen, uh, uh, mountain men would choose wives. Sometimes that's what uh, Carson did. Chose the young girl uh, singing grass there at, at the rendezvous. Had to fight another uh, man for her and won. Carson never missed, mm. by the way. <laughs> he didn't want to go up against Carson. Uh, he, no, he, he didn't miss. Uh, but uh, his yeah, to be honest, I don't know as much about uh, Fitzpatrick as I know about the rest. Huh? But I know he was often with uh, Carson and he was with Fremont. And he had the reputation huh? of being a superb mountain man. Uh, but he did yeah. get, he did take that uh, expedition up into the, the Sierra and almost got them killed. Yeah. Now, uh, on mountain men in general, what would you say would be the rate of guys that ended up with disfigurements or dismemberments or injuries that they had to deal with up there, survive, and still do their job as fur trappers and hunters? I think it was not unusual to lose a hand one way or another to frostbite or even in a trap. 
a, a mm-hmm. big trap, you know. To, you had to set them yep. with, with screws, <laughs> and if it closed, uh, you know, you were, you'd lost a hand or some some fingers. Yeah. Uh, but frostbite was very common. They were up there trapping in the wintertime. Uh, yeah. The beaver had the thickest fur in the wintertime. Uh, but in many other ways, uh, it was very, very dangerous, and many died, in fact, of of Indians, mm-hmm. and many were killed by Indians. They were killed by uh, rival trappers if they were encroaching on another. Uh, there were diseases uh, passed on to the Indians sometimes, or passed from the Indians back to, to uh, I mean, smallpox would take out a whole village. And, yeah. Uh, Indians were very, very vulnerable because they didn't have the immunity, but also because they, they would uh, sit with the dying people. Instead of isolating them, they considered mm. it very bad to not stay with the people dying. And, of course, they just, it was contagious and they kept dying of it. No. Uh, they didn't need to give them infected blankets. I mean, the, the diseases passed so quickly from the, from the white people to the Indians just without anybody trying to do it. Uh, yeah. If you had a bad accident in the Rocky Mountains... You were probably dead already if you broke a yeah. broke a leg or uh, got bad frostbite in your legs. It was yeah. that dangerous. If you had appendicitis, you were probably going to mm. die. Uh, if you had uh, so the- other you know life threatening things, a stroke, a heart attack, so it was extremely dangerous. And they knew it. So they knew it. Yeah. Uh, that's why they celebrated. So, the guys, so when they got back to Taos or Santa Fe, it's oh, I get, all their money. I can tell. Yeah. So the guys that actually survived were actually probably a very small percentage of the men that actually went out there. Then the names we know of the mountain men are a very small percentage of the men who went into the mountains. Uh, Mm-hmm. Those were the survivors, uh, the storytellers, the people who wrote their own stories. I think some wrote their own stories. Uh, but it was very, very dangerous for several reasons. I mean, mm-hmm. you could be shot uh, in Spanish territory. You could be shot by the Spanish. I mean, you weren't supposed to. Uh, Kit Carson's first territory. expedition was to the Gila River, which was Spanish territory. They were not supposed to be there, and uh, they could have been shot by by Spanish soldiers. Uh, they went to the west there in Arizona, uh, but it was prime trapping country because nobody had been there. They knew it. That's why they they told the authorities, "See, this was Spanish country." When the, and, uh, and the Mexican authorities that they were going north, and they swung around from the north west to go to the Gila River. But yes, it was extremely dangerous, and uh, they didn't live yeah. very long. The only really old mountain man I know is Bridger, right? He, he survived, yeah. but he quit hunting and was, was a trader, mostly, at a store. Uh, yeah. I know Hugh Glass, I mean, he got into a fight with a mama bear and somehow survived, and then ended up going and passing in the 60s. Uh, Hugh Glass' story is one of the most interesting I know, actually. He was with an expedition going going uh, up to Missouri to uh, trap furs, to trade for furs, and was attacked by a grizzly mm-hmm. and left for dead. 
young Jim Bridger was uh, assigned to stay with him until he died and give him yeah. a decent burial. Uh, but he, I guess, uh, thought the Indians were crowding around and a lot of Sioux were actually pretty dangerous and he uh, was persuaded yeah. to abandon Glass. And miraculously, huh? Hugh Glass survived. <laughs> he, mm-hmm. he, uh, the great story is that he crawled his way across the plains and down the river to the fort and then was treated by an Indian woman or by several Indian women who were mm-hmm. so kind to him and brought him round uh, that though he had vowed to kill Bridger and his companion, uh, he forgave them. And uh, later, of course, went into the wilderness himself and trapped and explored and uh, then apparently was killed by the Blackfeet. The Blackfeet were the most dangerous uh, of all the the Sioux. And uh, Mm -hmm. the saying on the frontier when Carson was there is, do not parley with the Blackfeet, shoot them on sight. And that was advice given to him by other Sioux and by other Indians. If you see a black, very much a black feet, shoot him on sight. Uh, because you're going to ask for death regardless. He's going to shoot you. Uh, it was a, it was a I tough know. world. It was a very tough life, yeah. and a tough world. And by our standards, these were very rough people. Uh, yeah, I know there were some Indian tribes that literally the only people they would take were women. Everybody else they killed, children, unless the children were and I could get that wrong it could actually be young children uh, youngish children that could keep up but infants men and elderly they killed on sight I believe well it depends uh, on the nation or the tribe and mm-hmm. it depended on uh, on their condition at that time that uh, a lot of Eastern Indians uh, made a big thing of adopting people into the tribe and this was not unusual among the Plains Indians also. Uh, one of the things that white people had trouble understanding was this adoption. They would often adopt an enemy, including an enemy who had killed one of your own members. And uh, it was your job, if you were adopted, to take the place of the person you had killed. This hmm. just made perfect sense to Native Americans to indigenous people. Boone was adopted by Blackfish partly because Blackfish thought he had killed his own son in that race Hmm. to rescue Jemima. Uh, Wow. And uh, Boone was a great hunter and it was a great honor to have him as an adopted son. But this was not unknown among the Plains Indians, among the Sioux, that if they liked somebody, they could adopt them, man, woman, child, uh, but if they were starving, <laughs> you know, couldn't afford to adopt anybody or didn't want to, then they would kill them and maybe take the, the women as wives. Uh, yeah. But it, it's hard to make rules about indigenous people. I mean, once you state a yeah. rule, the next thing you'll discover is an exception to it. Uh, mm-hmm. So you, it's, it's hard to make yeah. blanket statements about native people. It was different in different villages even. And often, when you you went into an Indian villages, there Indian villages, there would be somebody from other tribes 
visiting or adopted, French Canadians, uh, people who had been captured, even runaway slaves in, among tribes further east. Uh, wow. People speaking different languages in the village. Uh, they were much more tolerant of different people than we would think, because we know the stories of how savage they were, how how they would kill yeah. everybody. Uh, but taking, you know, the the captured person <laughs> into the village and adopting them into the tribe with a certain ceremony, they had to listen to a sermon, they had to learn the rules, what was expected of them, and the mm-hmm. men were absolutely expected to uh, to take a wife. It was a duty. Mm-hmm. If if uh, if a man didn't take a wife, it was considered he was just inferior. He was not the man, the hunter, the warrior. And the women competed to have the great warrior. For, uh, it's, a, it's it's hard for us to to compare their their culture to ours. It was this. Uh, yeah. It was part of the problem. I mean, they didn't understand each other. Uh, yeah. Was, uh, I mean, yeah, even even now, it's completely leaps and bounds from what our society is today. But it's why missionaries had, had so little success. They simply didn't understand them and who they were talking to. Yeah. They imagined that you could translate the Bible somehow, and, and this would make sense. You know, that somebody had died many, many years ago for their sins, and uh, this would uh, be understandable yeah. to to somebody who had a completely different culture and history and uh, ethics. Uh, well, so mis- missionaries yeah. had very little success with the uh, native yeah. tribes of the West, particularly in the High Plains and the, in the Northwest. They just didn't, they didn't get what they were trying to get, give out. The, the Whitmans were killed by the Cayuse, uh, who were trying yeah. to pressure them to be like white people. Pressure them to yep. have only one wife, <laughs> to give up gambling, uh, things that you know they had always done, and to work at farming. Yeah, they they had not been farmers; they were hunters. Yeah, they couldn't get the uh, guys that were heading out west to build the uh, railroad to give up gambling. What were they thinking? <laughs> well, the, uh, sometimes the Roman Catholics had better success because they were just teaching them. To perform the ceremonies, that, yeah. you know, there was no no inner conversion that the Protestants believed in. That the, the Roman Catholics would teach them to sing the songs or to take part in the mass or something. But no, mm-hmm. it's a sad story. I mean, the the, yeah. the immiscibility of these cultures that just couldn't couldn't feel. They were trying to force. They were. Instead of opening dialogue and trying to find an understanding, they were just trying to force their way through it. Well, now, some of the hunters had a lot more success. They married native wives and, and learned the languages and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But the missionaries were trying something else. They were bringing something they thought uh, Indians needed instead of learning from the Indians. It's mm-hmm. a one-way kind of thing. Yeah. And the reality is, if you look at it from a certain perspective, the incoming people to the land, the wild lands outside, were actually the savages compared to who the people that said they were savages were not. 
if it was that yeah, makes in the sense. eye of the beholder, <laughs> you understood pretty much these things. Like, did that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> so, do you know what uh, injuries Hugh Glass sustained? I know he uh, he was just clawed so badly that he couldn't mm-hmm. walk. His, his legs were so damaged and he was so weak from loss of blood. Uh, mm-hmm. So he, he, for part of that trip, was just literally crawling on the ground. And when he saw uh, Indians, he would, you know, crawl into a ditch or something uh, and uh, wait until they, they moved on. Uh, but it obviously affected his legs. He could, he could not walk. And also... Yeah. He was so weak, I don't think he could stand up. But this is one of the most amazing uh, stories of the, of the whole rest that he actually made yeah. it. Uh, Survived a bear attack, Lily crawled to safety, and then was able to make it back on mostly his own power and continue on. And I guess say, if he had that bad with his legs, he probably had some serious problems later on in life. But they healed up, apparently, because he, under the nursing of the Indian woman, he he recovered so that he could return to hunting and trapping. And he was, no he was way up the river, you know, when he encountered the black feet. Uh, so he, yeah, he returned to his, uh, his occupation, which was hunting and trapping. And guiding and military guys. Well, do you want to um, tag any social, uh, share any social media that you uh, have, or just want to tag anything? <laughs> well, I would like to say that uh, almost everybody has some handicap. I mean, mm-hmm. some are more visible than others. Uh, I remember when I started hunting, my problem was was eyesight. I've never had very good eyes. So I yeah. uh, had to deal with that or overcome it. But uh, yeah. I think this is a great subject and uh, yeah. encouraging people to enjoy the outdoors and the wilderness, whatever their their condition is, oh, yeah. to feel that they belong there. Yeah. Now, is there any way, do you want people to reach is there any way you want people to reach out to you, like Facebook or Instagram? Or uh, I have a website that is easily accessible. It's www.robert-morgan.com. Mm-hmm. You can always oh. be reached through that. Oh, well. Thank you, Robert, for coming on. It's been a long time coming, and I knew we've been planning it for a while, and we were finally able to connect. And yeah, we finally get it did. Done. And it's also for my guests. This is the first episode, podcast episode that is has a visual aspect. So if you see it on YouTube or wherever else you'll be able to see my smiling mug and Robert's smiling face while we talk about history, which is one of my favorite subjects. So, Thank you, Robert, for coming on and being the guest. And remember, everybody, 
stay adaptive. My pleasure.